Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. I'm Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by my old friend Steve Roach. He is the author of a new book called Accidental Conflict, America, China, and the Clash of False Narratives. It's a book I've been waiting for for a long time, and not because Steve told me he was writing it, but because these clashing narratives, the need to change the narrative in order to to kind of have policies which make sense for both countries is absolutely critical. Um, it is a must read for all experts, all who want to be experts on U.S.-China relations. And I hope it is a must read for our friends in the Biden administration. Steve, let me start with the first question. Is This is obviously you've written several books. The last book was Unbalanced, um, was called Unbalanced. Uh, is this kind of the intellectual successor to that previous book? Well, there is a flow, a connection, as you correctly point out, Steve. And let me just say it's a pleasure to be with you and discuss this. But Unbalanced was a, a book that really focused on a two-way relationship between the United States and China uh, that I dubbed, and others have as well, a codependent relationship. And I ended the book with a warning. I said, look, um, there's no guarantee that this codependency is going to remain intact. If one uh, partner, the U.S. or China, changes and the other one doesn't, uh, there's a chance this could lead to frictions and conflict. And that book basically came out in uh, very late 2014. And within a year, that's exactly what happened. So I felt compelled to trace this uncomfortable uh, codependency into a process that's led to a trade war, a tech war, and a new cold war in just the last five years, figure out why this happened uh, and what can be done to arrest it. That's, uh, there is a, a true uh, a continuum between the two books in that respect. Yeah, it was it was quite stunning to me. I should have I'm assuming our audience already knows you, but I probably shouldn't make that assumption. And I should say that you are currently senior fellow at the Paul Tsai China Center at Yale Law School. And of course, as everyone knows, former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia. Give us uh, the listeners a flavor of what's in the book, kind of briefly summarize uh, each country's false narrative about the other. Well, the, the book starts with a with three chapters on the relationship itself and describes this uh, interdependency, its history, and its dynamic uh, in the world today. And I make the case that both nations are vulnerable, susceptible to embracing false narratives because they're politically expedient. Uh, in the U.S., for example, there's unanimous bipartisan sentiment uh, against China. And so we're almost compelled politically uh, to be tough on both sides of the aisle with respect to this issue. Uh, I 
focus equally, and I'm trying to be fair here, on false narratives from both sides, and that's the bulk of the book. Four chapters on America's false narratives of China, four on China's false narratives of America. Uh, the number one false narrative that the U.S. has, which um, uh, you and I have spoken about for years, is we blame China for our large trade deficit, when in fact uh, we had trade deficits last year with 106 uh, uh, nations altogether. China was the largest, but by no means the only one. And this is a reflection of our savings problem rather than one that we blame uh, exclusively on alleged unfair trading practices of uh, China. We failed to address our savings problem. It's politically expedient to blame China for our trade problem. China, on the other hand, um, uh, my favorite false narrative there, has a lot of structural issues uh, that are impeding its economy. They have failed to rebalance from exports uh, and investment-led uh, economic growth to more of a consumer-led uh, economy, and yet they blame America's containment uh, uh, for that failed rebalancing of their own. There are plenty of other false narratives I could take you through them, uh, but those are two highlights um, in each of the uh, uh, the two big false narrative sections of the book. One of the great, I mean, there are a lot of great sections of this book, but one of them is something which you and I have been discussing since 2018, which is the USTR's what they call 301 report. Um, it was, I guess the polite way to be to put it would be conclusory. And what the book do, does is really goes into the footnotes of the report, really goes into uh, the assertions that it makes and comes to the conclusion that in a lot of instances, data was, was missing. Can you kind of give the audience a taste of that part of the book and what conclusions you drew? Well, the Section 301 report is, is one that I scrutinized in detail for the China classes I've been teaching at Yale, 182 pages, some 1,300 footnotes, um, allegation after allegation after allegation. Uh, again, take the leading example, the notion of forced technology transfer, <laughs> that we must engage the Chinese in joint ventures with a Chinese partner to operate uh, and set up a uh, a subsidi subsidiary uh, in China. Uh, that implies, you know, a, an explicit coercion on the part of the Chinese uh, uh, partner or the, 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 the Chinese system for uh, sophisticated multinationals to turn over the crown jewels of their competitive prowess. Uh, number one, I was involved in a joint venture when I was at Morgan Stanley and nothing could be further from the truth. And I uh, know a, a number of uh, businessmen, not just in financial services, but in key sensitive manufacturing industries who would substantiate the same thing. What the Section 301 report does, which it just staggered me, if you go to page 19, the near the bottom of the page, I still remember it very vividly, uh, Lighthizer and his team admits there is no evidence on this issue of coercion. Because according to them, the coercion uh, is verbal and, uh, and, and takes place behind closed doors. So instead, 
they rely on uh, uh, surveys of groups like the, the U.S.-China Business Council, uh, whose members indicate that they, there has been some discomfort uh, in some of their relationships with their Chinese partners, but that is very different than uh, nailing um, uh, the case for forced technology transfer. And there's more. I mean, you know. Uh, what about the IPR theft portion, which is good? All this becomes, it becomes lore. It becomes the gospel. Well, it does. And and the, the idea that uh, China uh, steals intellectual property from the United States, which now politicians have described as the greatest theft in recorded human history, the evidence on that is not not even shaky. It's 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 really uh, concocted. It's based on uh, studies that were done by the illustrious uh, IP Commission, uh, which they didn't really have the staff to do the study, so they subcontracted it out. Uh, and uh, you know, without taking you through all the minutia of uh, the evidence they assembled, uh, they basically had about $2 billion of uh, piracy data from the Customs and Border Patrol of goods confiscated at the border uh, uh, that allegedly uh, uh, came from China. And they blew this up to an estimate of between three and $600 billion of theft that occurs each year. And they, they built it up based on models that are dubious would be a compliment. Uh, and, and so this has, in fact, become uh, the law, and it's repeated by Republicans and Democrats alike. Yeah. A famous Secretary of State told me recently, former Secretary of State, uh, just because there's a bipartisan consensus doesn't mean it's right, which... Fair point. Uh, was a very good point. Um, you write, blaming China for the U.S. trade deficit is a triumph of political rhetoric over arithmetic. Talk about that in terms of savings rates. I don't think most people don't understand that relationship unless if they've got a PhD from... Anyone. Yeah, I know. I, I've testified in front of that, uh, on that point in front of the Congress for a number of years, and their eyes glaze over. I think most of them... Uh, have not taken economics, and those that did probably didn't do very well. But the, the macroeconomics that we practice um, is, is really pretty simple in this respect. Uh, if you don't save as a nation and you want to grow, uh, you must import surplus savings from abroad. And uh, when you import surplus savings from abroad to fund your economic growth, um, you run a massive balance of payments deficit, and that's what gives rise to the multilateral deficit with many nations. Uh, you know, I just checked uh, before I uh, plugged in uh, with you today, the, the, um, the, the domestic savings rate in, in the United States, which is the important savings rate, adjusted for uh, the depreciation of worn out uh, capacity is 1.8% of national income, 1.8. No nation, no leading nation in the history of the world has ever been that deficient uh, in savings. The savings rate, by contrast, in China 
on a comparable apples to apples basis is at least 10 times that magnitude. So with a very, very low savings rate, um, we are absolutely destined to have trade deficits with many, many countries. 30 years ago, we had the same problem. We blamed Japan. And now we blame uh, uh, China. And it is politically expedient to have a scapegoat to hold others accountable for deficiencies that are very much of our own making. The biggest source of our shortfall in domestic saving is, of course, our massive budget deficits. But um, consumers and businesses certainly don't save enough to even come close to uh, offsetting that shortfall. But the Chinese have economic policies which create too much savings, and that also has a role in the in the in the multilateral in the trade deficit. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, as a surplus saver, the Chinese have uh, an even larger number of uh, trade surpluses around the world than than we have uh, deficits. And I've been very critical for years of the Chinese for um, fostering policies that uh, perpetuate too much saving, because uh, in the case of households, for example, uh, that's an outgrowth of a very deficient social safety net. They don't have enough set aside to fund uh, their retirement. And as we're seeing now in this uh, COVID, whether it's uh, zero or uh, non-zero COVID, uh, the healthcare security issues are also very real. And until the Chinese build out that social safety net, uh, their household saving will remain high and that will inhibit the discretionary consumption they need to rebalance their economy. And that's a a real problem for them that that they have not addressed. Was there some positive news in the work conference of last Friday, the economic work conference of last Friday in this area? Short term at best. Um, It's clear that Xi Jinping, after nearly three years of digging in his heels on uh, zero COVID, has done a 180. Uh, and, um, you know, that's basically to deal uh, with the undercurrent of a very um, uh, unsettled uh, population, but also to address the shortfall in economic growth. Uh, it's pretty chaotic right now, as you know, in China, in going from zero to non-zero COVID. Uh, you know, they have lousy vaccines. The elderly are unvaccinated. They have limited uh uh, ICU capacity, intensive care capacity in their hospitals. And, uh, you know, they're dealing, as we well know, uh, in the U.S. with a highly contagious uh, Omicron strain of this virus. Uh, and, um, you know, the, it, to, to perpetuate that uh, would um, uh, really lead to uh, major constraints ongoing in economic growth. So it looks like, you know, we'll see a little bit of a rebound and economic growth uh, ne- uh, next year uh, after a terrible uh, outcome this year. The questions I have, though, really pertain to the growth outlook beyond that, and uh, which I'm pretty concerned about right now, especially as a congenital China optimist. And I think there's good reason to be worried now about the medium to longer term growth prospects in China in a way that we haven't been uh, in the past. And I don't think the the, uh, uh, the latest uh, 
uh, work conference address that in any way whatsoever. Seem to focus a little bit more on the private sector, on on kind of you know the pendulum swinging a little bit away from supporting the state sector, supporting the private sector. Wouldn't that be good news? It would be if they if they mean it. Um, you know the real dynamism of the private sector uh, has uh, over the past I don't know seven or eight years been concentrated in the uh, uh, very rapidly growing, highly creative internet platform companies. And they've been subjected to a lot of criticism for doing that. They're backpedaling the rhetoric, but I think the uh, the prognosis for this sector uh, is, is still very problematic. And, uh, you know, that's a big threat, I think, to the entrepreneurial activity that has been driving uh, dynamic sectors like this that uh, myself and others have been counting on uh, for uh, uh, Chinese dynamism for a long, long time. And I, I don't think that they uh, are prepared to reverse that yet. Yeah. You have a great section on the on the what we call the phase one trade deal, which you call an unfortunate combination of political theater and bad economics. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about what's in that section? Well, you know, the theater, of course, came from our 45th president, who proudly declared that this deal, like many of the others that he was able to pull off in his presidency, was the greatest deal in the history of trade deals. Um, the unfortunate arithmetic uh, goes back to the point I made earlier, Steve, and that is uh, the um, phase one trade deal, which ran from uh, January uh, uh, 2020 through the end of uh, uh, 2021 uh, was aimed at a bilateral fix to our multilateral problem that centered on uh, the, the uh, commitment of the Chinese to purchase $200 billion of American-made goods. And um, you know, when the, the dust was settled on, on what happened over the two-year duration of the trade deal, we, fell, we found out that the Chinese fell $200 billion short of hitting the $200 billion target. So there was nothing there. Uh, and, um, uh, and again, it goes back to the, uh, the, the point we've been discussing uh, a few minutes ago, and that is the idea that you can sort of solve a trade deficit with over a hundred uh, countries by uh, putting pressure on one, um, admittedly our largest trading partner, is not supported by theory and is not supported by reality. The Chinese piece uh, did shrink because of the tariffs, but uh, that portion of our multilateral trade deficit was diverted to other nations like you know Mexico, Vietnam, uh, Germany, um, uh, uh, Singapore, Taiwan, and and the like, and and so our big overall trade deficit, the multilateral one, got bigger rather than smaller. The deal was a total failure, and of course, because they were less efficient than China, because we had the tariffs. It was the equivalent of a tax hike, as you write in the book, a tax yes. hike yes. Uh, on companies and consumers. Uh, what always bothered me, and I'm wondering if you agree, is it seems to me to also 
uh, punish lower income Americans more than wealthier Americans. Is that assumption correct? Yeah, I think I think it is to some extent. Um, you know, by <clears throat> almost by definition of, of of lifestyles, looking at low and middle income Americans versus high income Americans who consume a lot of sophisticated services uh, and um, other forms of non tradable um, uh, goods as well as services. Those who are affected the most by um, distortions of tradable goods, uh, which is what the the focus of uh, the tariffs and the phase one trade deal are, they they get off better, and, and that penalizes, especially from a cost point of view, uh, those at the uh, uh, the lower end of the income distribution as well. Also, as a percentage of their that, if, let's say it's a thousand dollars a family, if you're yeah. making five hundred thousand, it's not much of a percentage. If you're making twenty five thousand, it's it's a four percent tax increase. Absolutely, four percent tax increase. You know, the the book. I, I forget some of these statistics, but the book brings them back. That China's exports to the United States over the last twenty years have grown. Uh, from 2% merchandise exports to 9%, which is an annualized growth, the book points out, of 12% a year. What? I think if you said that, I think as people read your book, they're going to go, really? Why is that not generally known and repeated all the time? Why is that not part of the narrative? It's politically expedient. Again, politicians like to believe that the Chinese are heavily reliant on American markets, on American finance, uh, and without our support and cooperation, uh, we put enormous one-way pressure on China. And I make the case in the book, I hope convincingly, that um, we are basically just as reliant on China as they are on us. Uh, American consumers need low-cost Chinese goods to make ends meet. We need China to loan, uh, loan us their surplus saving by buying our treasuries to fund our deficit. And to the point you just raised, uh, to the extent we want to grow our economy again, make America great again, just to coin a trite phrase, by restoring manufacturing vitality, China over you know the past... <clears throat> Uh, almost two decades now, quite honestly, has become our third largest export market behind Mexico and Canada, but by far our most rapidly growing. And so we need Chinese export demand to support the revitalization of export-led growth of um, uh, American manufacturing. And uh, uh, to the extent that uh, the Chinese have now retaliated uh, by putting tariffs on American-made goods sold in China, you know that's a real growth impediment for us to uh, have to come to grips with as well. I guess a lot of people would ask: Is China's reliance more existential than on the United States than America's reliance on China? That we pay higher co costs, we'll survive it, but. When we restrict exports of chips and of other technology, that actually kills an industry. So it's much more existential than the U.S. reliance. Well, you know that that's a question that you know ultimately 
history will <clears throat> render a verdict on. There is no mistake that, uh, and, and this is, you know, I have a chapter in the book called um, From Trump to Biden. Yeah. Uh, the plot thickens. And the point I made there is that um, the, the actual policies that are being uh, aimed at uh, restricting China right now in, in many respects are more severe under the Biden administration than they were under the Trump administration. And in just the last few months, uh, the uh, export sanctions of early October uh, followed by the expansion in recent days of the, uh, uh, the blacklist, the entity list, uh, aimed at um, leading uh, Chinese technology companies going far beyond the original assault on Huawei uh, are truly aimed at China's um, most important industries of the future, um, AI and quantum computing. And if we are successful in uh, choking off uh, the chips that go into the growth of those uh, two endeavors and, and uh, make no mistake, American officials have said that's exactly what we're trying to do, then that, that's a, a serious uh, threat to uh, uh, the China of the future. And what surprises me right now is that the Chinese uh, have not retaliated uh, to those actions. They filed a, a dispute with the World Trade Organization, but we all know those take years to adjudicate. And the U.S. could just reject any uh, resolution under grounds of national security if the dispute resolution process ever gets restarted again. So you've been an enthusiast for investing and doing business with China for many, many decades. Uh, you've raised questions in this interview about, is this the China whose economic policies we always believed were right? Uh, are, do you still believe that China's GDP will exceed America's in the near future? Well, you know, I look at those um, estimates that I've made, and I'm not the only one that's made them, and I look at some of the assumptions embedded in them. Uh, it's quite possible now that that I may be overly, may have been overly optimistic in the book. I still think uh, we're headed there, but, uh, you know, I ventured in the book that, you know, we, we could hit that uh, parity <clears throat> on a uh, a dollar-based, uh, a GDP basis by by 2030, and and maybe it it, it comes a few years later uh, if, if China, of course, stumbles and has a, a major uh, accident, then then it would be uh, later than that. But I don't I don't think that's going to happen. But you know, to the broader point, uh, the medium to longer term growth outlook for China now is one that I am uh, raising some very serious concerns of my own. Uh, the working age population is now shrinking because of the demography of the one-child family uh, policy. And so when that happens to offset it uh, and stay on a course of rapid growth, you need an acceleration of productivity growth. Productivity growth has been declining in China for the past uh, several years. And the outlook, um, in light of um, some of the earlier points we made on private sector, especially internet platform companies, um, is, 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 is problematic. And um, uh, I think China 
needs to 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 really focus much more on the productivity side of its equation than it appears to be doing right now. And uh, one of the unfortunate conclusions coming out of the 20th Party Congress is that Xi Jinping is fixated on security rather than economic growth. Uh, and uh, that is a, uh, a potential headwind uh, to productivity that uh, may come back to haunt him. And that would uh, affect uh, these growth convergence scenarios that are uh, that we talk about in the book and that others feature as well. What about AI as a real source of productivity growth? Very important. And um, combined with robotics. You know, to me, the most interesting work on AI has come from uh, the venture capitalist, um, Dr. Kaifu Lee, who's looked at uh, the the AI uh, competitive dynamic U.S. and China in great detail. And he concludes, and I have no reason to doubt him, that the, the real opportunities in AI are shifting away from the theory and the, the algorithms that arise out of that theory and more toward um, uh, applications. And the applications are driven uh, by the aggregation of these massive big data sets where China has an enormous amount of data, not always uh, compiled in the uh, you know, in the in the spirit of uh, of privacy that that we put such great premium on uh, in in the West, but they've got the data, and so I think they can still stay the course of um, uh, of, of their trajectory to AI leadership. But um, the uh, the restraints that we're putting on advanced semiconductor chips certainly do raise questions about ever increasing processing power that is going to be required for increasingly sophisticated AI applications. And it's a very important point uh, we're thinking about for the future. Because it's Steve Roach, because he's not satisfied with just talking about the problem, the end of the book proposes some interesting kind of ways to start down a path of resolving some of these problems to rebuilding trust. Could you just give the listeners a flavor of what you propose so they'll go out and buy the book? Yeah, well, thank you for raising that, Steve. I mean, um, I quickly learned on Wall Street that, you know, um, investors get tired of you if all you do is talk about problems without providing solutions. So this book ends with... um, three chapters on solutions. Uh, and it starts with you know the important point that this is a relationship problem. And America doesn't have a China problem. China doesn't have a, a US problem. The two of us together have a relationship problem that requires a relationship solution. So we need um, uh, three things to uh, uh, resolve this conflict. One, and I know you've actually written about this, um, uh, rebuilding trust. And there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that can be picked, um, such as uh, some of the points that you've mentioned, reopening consulates, restarting uh, foreign exchange pro- uh, programs, relaxing visa requirements, uh, restrictions on NGO uh, activity in, in both nations. And then I focus a lot on some of the higher-hanging fruit, uh, the big global issues uh, such as uh, climate change, uh, health, uh, especially in this COVID era, and cyber. The second 
leg of the stool is um, one that abandons this uh, zero-sum bilateral trade deficit framework that we've talked about a lot today and moves back to a positive-sum pro-growth uh, market-opening initiative framed around a bilateral investment treaty. And the third leg of the stool is the one that I think is possibly the most unique, recognizing that the current architecture of engagement that we have right now, which used to be framed around the strategic and economic dialogues, now you know bilateral meetings such as the November 14th, three-hour this in-person discussion between Presidents Xi and Biden, it hasn't worked and it will not work. And I'm proposing the establishment of a permanent uh, organization that I call a US-China secretariat that works full-time on all aspects of the relationship from trade uh, and economics uh, to uh, uh, human rights, technology transfer, innovation, uh, subsidies to state sponsored activities. And I think those three legs of the stool together uh, provide a, uh, a much better chance for a relationship solution to a relationship problem. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for writing this terrific book, Accidental Conflict, America, China, and the Clash of False Narratives. It needed writing. You did a fabulous job writing it, and I recommend it to everyone who's listening to us today. But Thanks thank very much, so Steve. Much. Thank you very much. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.